power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And the demagogue is the most vulnerable to this because of the lack of an internal sense of code of ethics and the ability even of a demagogue to put uh, nation and constitution above selfish interests and, and pursuit of power. So the demagogue converts into an authoritarian once drinking at the cup of power. And it's fascinating that we did see precisely that with Donald Trump. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. A simple version of American history depicts the original 13 American colonies banding together as one, declaring their independence in 1776, fighting and winning an eight-year-long war of independence against the British, and then triumphantly establishing the United States of America. But how united was this new nation? Political historian Eli Merritt of Vanderbilt University asserts that despite its harmonious-sounding name, the United States was actually more like a shotgun marriage that nearly ended in a quick divorce. Merritt is the author of a new book, Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. He writes, quote, The American Union was an unwelcome alliance formed by bitterly conflictual colonies and regions, close quote. The primary purpose of the original American government was to prevent the colonies from disintegrating into civil war. Eli Merritt writes political commentary for the New York Times, L.A. Times, and for his substack, American Commonwealth. Merritt notes that America's founders warned of the danger of demagogues like Donald Trump, and he writes that, quote, the first step in democratic breakdown is the election of a demagogue to power. Merritt spent July 4th at a celebration at the White House. I began by asking him what Independence Day means to him. What does Independence Day mean to me? Um, I, when you bring that up, I actually, uh, now I have fresh on my mind, Juneteenth as another form of Independence Day. But let me answer that question. The 4th of July is a day of independence. Um, means a number of things. It is the moment in which we declare the, found, the founding of this nation, if we had not won the war, then we, we probably wouldn't be an important day, but we did win the war. So it was the first time that the colonies declared their independence and began to refer to themselves as independent states. <clears throat> so that's one uh, important aspect of the 4th of July and the Declaration of Independence. To me, there are two other important aspects of the Declaration of Independence. And one is that it is our founding creed and established that all people are created equal, which as everyone knows has been essential to the progress, and we've had setbacks certainly, but the progress of equality in the country for the past almost 250 years. And the last thing that I think people think about less with regard to the Declaration of Independence is that it is a document that clearly establishes uh, what we call today, and they called back then, the right of revolution, which ultimately means the right after, after years of, of long sufferance and attempting to turn back unconstitutional government through civil disobedience, nonviolent civil disobedience, that a people who cherish their liberties and freedoms have the right to withdraw from arbitrary government. So that last part is the Declaration of Independence is actually, it's a nonviolent manifesto. When we say right of revolution, people think pick up guns and go on the move, but you're only picking up the guns in self-defense of your rights and liberties. It's really about after long sufferance, not, not, not short periods of discontent, that as John Locke has taught and another political writer named Sidney back at that time 
they say the, the only way you can escape sometimes from arbitrary government or tyrannical government is through your right to resist in the beginning, but then your right to withdraw from the government. So all of that is what the Declaration of Independence means to me or, or Independence Day. In the sort of sentimental or perhaps sanitized version of what the Independence Day means, what do you think has been lost? Because you talk about, I guess I think of the simple version, uh, the the kind of childhood history version is of, you know, <laughs> the American revolutionaries banding together to cast off the king and all walk together hand in hand into this bright future. But you talk about the fact that they were at each other's throats as they were figuring out how and whether they even wanted to come together. Well, I'm, I'm glad you pivoted to that because now you've pivoted to the book. And so the Declaration of Independence does also have a, a, the success of actually adopting the Resolution of Independence on July 2nd, 1776, and then the de unanimous declaration two days later. This aspect of fears of disunion and civil wars is quite prominent. I would say that, um, that the founders were not at one another's throats, and I'll tell you why. I would say that they had extraordinary discord, extraordinary distrust of one another is from almost from foreign countries. Um, but they did importantly practice civic virtue in their politics. And so I think without that civic virtue, they had procedures and they interacted with one another with civility and respect and ultimately with cooperation and compromise. So, but so the dominant theme that you're making allusion to is that uh, the, the revelation of the book, so to speak, is that is something I call the, 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 uh, the survivalist interpretation. And what that means is the founders did what they did throughout the whole American Revolution and thereafter, they did what they did to save their souls from civil wars. And so the notion here is that's not been fully understood is what they feared most was that something would happen within the Continental Congress that would cause one or more states to secede from the Union. It could have been to secede from the War of Independence or it could have been secede from the Union after the War of Independence. And if a handful of states seceded, then they, though logically everyone understood, they would go on to form their own confederation. And in fact, at the time, many uh, thinkers thought, well, these very diverse uh, 13 colonies would probably be better off in separate confederations. So that is actually not the danger. In this case, at that time, the danger was not disunion into separate confederations. It's the fact that those separate confederations could never actually coexist at peace. They would have fought civil wars over entangled finances, over commerce, including river commerce, and they would have fought wars primarily over um, land. There was just so much land that was in dispute, and we know human beings fight uh, wars over land. So that's why <clears throat> in the book I call it a shotgun wedding, meaning that the founders did what they did. They formed the Declaration of Independence when they did. They secured the Articles of Confederation. <clears throat> they compromised on some things and did not compromise on other things like slavery due to this survivalist uh, theory and this three-step mechanism of, of conflict leading to uh, withdrawal of a state or other states into separate confederations leading to civil war. And I, we could talk about how that directly influenced the Declaration of Independence, but I wanted to give you the general overview first. So let's pick up on that idea of the shotgun wedding. Um, what finally forced the two parties in this um, wedding, this improbable wedding, to sit down and tie the knot? 
Uh, well, that'll take us to the Declaration of Independence. Um, <clears throat> and you, now you're, you've really helped me because I say a shotgun wedding, we think of, uh, of two people getting married. But in this case, it was either 13 or three, meaning uh, they, they had the sense that if they broke apart, the dominant line of division was going to be a New England Confederation, a middle colonies or middle states confederation and a southern states confederation. Uh, so, or there was also talk of the possibility of dividing into North and South at, the, at that point back in the 1770s. So with the Declaration of Independence, it, the, the big date that we know is July 4th, of course, but if we go back to June, the important thing to recognize is by then there were a lot of uh, colonies that were very anxious to launch into independence. They had been waiting over a year New, Eng New Englanders in particular were, were virtually ready to launch into independence after um, Lexington and Concord. So they've been waiting patiently for the other colonies to come along in order to form one union uh, to, um, to fight the war of independence and to defend themselves and to then form a, a 13 a state confederation. But by that time, early June, the most of the middle colonies, which is New York and, and New Jersey and Delaware and Pennsylvania, <clears throat> They were just not ready. They were like, no, we're not, we're, we're uneasy about this. We don't want to go forward. So on June 7th, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, for folks who've read some of that history, kind of famously steps up into the Continental Congress and really offers up the resolution for independence, saying now is the time, all 13 of us, it's time to declare our independence. Thomas Jefferson records the next day, June 8th, that the middle colonies in South Carolina drew a, a really a strong red line of disunion in the center of the Continental Congress in which they said, according to Jefferson's uh, notes, that they would, if this were advanced without their approval in a precipitous way, they would secede from the Union. That's what was reported by Thomas Jefferson. So that, of course, at that moment, in, on June 8th, threw really a great amount of cold water on the prospect of a, a Union of 13 declaring independence simultaneously. The decision they made the next day was, okay, this is too hot to handle now. But those states that were pro-independence and really ready to move said, all right, let's set July 1st as the date to come back and vote this thing. And so on July 1st, they came back and they voted, but still the outcome of the decision was hardly unanimous. It was really in many ways disastrous. And what happened is nine of the colonies voted for independence and four did not. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania and uh, Pennsylvania and and South Carolina voted no, those two voted no. Delaware split its vote, so it didn't apply. And New York didn't actually have instructions to vote either way. So what you had was a supermajority in the Continental Congress in favor of independence. And the others, the four middle colonies is the thing we'll focus on for just a second, because it's fascinating. The four middle colonies uh, were not ready to go. So now you got to understand that Virginia and some of the other Southern colonies and New England were ready to go now. We are going to go. So you got to make your decision. We, and, and let's be clear. We're talking about ready to go from the United Kingdom. We are yes. ready to declare our independence. And so in some ways, it was a do or die moment that they could revote this thing the next day or the middle colonies could continue to uh, you know, obstruct the forward movement. And now I want people to think about a map and see the geography of this. And one reason, at least, why those middle colonies actually made the decision quite rapidly we're going with independence versus trying to oppose Virginia and the Southern colonies in New England. They are in the middle, right? They're called the middle states or the middle colonies before they declared independence. They are right between New England and Virginia. And you, what you have is New England saying, 
we're going. Virginia saying we're going. And so imagine the situation of the middle colonies. If they said, well, they had the option, we're not going. We're staying with the British Empire or give us a little more time. You guys move forward. Maybe we'll join up. We got to do some more political work in our in our colonies. The thing is this, the middle colonies would have become the worst fields of bloodshed in the, on the entire continent had they decided not to join in and, 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 and move towards a unanimous declaration of independence because the southern states, the southern colonies, southern states in New England needed to have military correspondence. They needed to use roads. They needed to use rivers. They needed to, to, have, to get foodstuffs for, the, for their militaries. So that's where we have a shotgun wedding. That's where we have a moment that was really do or die. So overnight on July 1st, by some miracle, they, I think they stayed up late. I don't think they went to sleep too much. They found a way to cast all of their votes so that on July 2nd, they got a unanimous vote in favor of the declaration, not, not the declaration of independence, of the resolution for independence. So July 1st is actually the birth of the union. New York basically was not able to, to vote, but it said, we're coming in, just consider it unanimous. We will join in really fast. So that's how we got um, the Declaration of Independence when we did. You talk about a tragic aspect of the American Revolution, how the uh, supposedly enlightened founders of the Republic end up perpetuating the crime of slavery in spite of the fact that it contradicted the ideals of liberty and freedom that inspired the War of Independence. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Uh, the perpetuation of slavery, yes. The, the book uh, offers a new interpretive lens for understanding that, which is the survivalist uh, interpretation, which we discussed uh, briefly a moment ago. And by that model, again, I'll just repeat that the notion is that the founders did what they did to save their souls from civil wars. But now briefly on why the founders perpetuated slavery. I, I'm a deep believer in complex history, not single history. I'm a deep believer in not one explanation history, but many explanations that, that help us to understand what happened in the past. So as most of us know and accept and acknowledge that one of the explanatory models for why the founders uh, perpetuated slavery is something we could call the white, white supremacist or the systemic racism interpretive lens, which is uh, just racial the no notion of racial superiority that was handed down to the founders of the nation by their own ancestors in at least a uh, uh, hundred years of history prior to that and was embedded within them. And so they practiced that way of thinking. That's one model. The other that folks are more aware of also is the economic interpretation of why the founders perpetuated slavery. And that is both North and South had deep um, investments in their economy. We had a what I like to think of as a pretty heinous economic system that in both North and South depended on the slave trade and also slave labor. So that's economic interpretation. And so the survivalist interpretation is similar to what we described earlier. It is that if a Northern state uh, or colony or even earlier, but if in a Northern state had come in during the war of independence or thereafter and said, you know, we've really been thinking about this and we find this institution of slave uh, slavery that you practice um, in in the southern states to be entirely incompatible with the enlightenment it's entirely incompatible with our own declaration of independence so we've made the decision we want to work with you on this but we we want to end the slave trade and we're not going to unite with you if you don't at least 
adopt a, a plan for the gradual emancipation of enslaved peoples. Well, it is well known uh, to anyone who understands the records and the thinking of, of the Southerners, particularly South Carolinians and Georgians, they would have withdrawn from the Union. That, that is, I think, I don't think there's many historians of this period that would disagree with that. So there you get into the catastrophic outcome that I describe the, in the survivalist interpretation. You get a couple of Southern states withdrawing from the Union, probably, though not certainly, probably other Southern states join them. They form a separate, they form a separate confederation. And they would also, because the Southern states have no navies, they have no boats, no ships, they're gonna form an alliance with a country like France. And now for the reasons we described earlier, because they had entangled finances and over commerce and over land, they certainly would have fallen into civil wars. They might've tried to negotiate diplomatically, but I think they did not have faith they would successfully do that. So that is, an, there are many reasons why the founders perpetuated slavery. The survivalist interpretation is one of many interpretations that help us to understand that. Are you convinced, looking through the lens of history from 2023, that civil war would have resulted? Or could we have survived in some other form, a confederacy of states? Um, the South, after all, as you know, was weak. Um, it would not have been able to stand on its own economically, militarily at that time, at the time of the American Revolution and the first constitution. Um, how do you assess it from this vantage point? I, I still assess it the same way from now. I mean, this idea of a shotgun wedding is, is very compelling, I think. So as we think of, you can even think of Independence Hall and the 55 delegates, well, they change, but the 55 delegates there negotiating basically anything, whether it's the Declaration of Independence or the Articles of Confederation or the Treaty of Paris, outside, it's kind of helpful to imagine the guns of civil war. The idea is, if you come out, there will be civil war. So that motivated them on the basis of the emotion that I think is most fundamental. The most fundamental driver of all human behavior is fear. They feared civil war. They feared death. They feared what was often described by some of the smartest founders. Uh, in, in the nation, including John Witherspoon, who was uh, the president of what later became Princeton. He said, if this happens and we fall into a civil war among ourselves, it will be far, far worse than this war of independence we're fighting right now. Um, so if there had been disunion during the war of independence uh, and the Southern states had withdrawn from helping um, New England, we gotta remember where did this war of independence begin and where did it remain for several years? After 1776, it was in New England almost exclusively. And then, and then in New York, let me clarify, it's in what would be the Northern states. Um, if the Southern had withdrawn, they would have logically turned to the British empire for, for aid and help. And what do you get when you think of that? Well, now Brit, the British who had no, they had some landing places in Canada, but now they have a very ready army of these Southerners Think of this, not fighting against them for a war of independence, but fighting with them against the northern states. I, I do not think the, let's be clear, that would have been a war of independence of the northern states if that division had happened. It would have been, I don't think that New England and, and the northern colonies would have backed down probably at that place. Um, but you would, have had, you would have had a war of independence of the north, either New England alone or all of the northern states. And I think they would have lost. And then if disunion had happened after the War of Independence, then 
it, it, we would have gotten what I've described, civil wars over things to fight about. And Spain, France, and Britain, mainly Britain and mainly France, uh, would take great interest in coming back in to cause mischief. Britain would have would have wanted to come back in as they did much later in the War of 1812 to really try and reconquer the colonies, to win them back. It was obviously very humiliating to Great Britain that they lost the most precious assets in the entire empire. Yours is the first book, Disunion Among Ourselves, um, to tell the story of the founders' maneuvers to avert disunion and civil war. It's not a story that's well known. As I said at the beginning, we have a much glossier view of these, you know, happy colonists, um, you know, rising up against the evil king. How did you become interested in the kind of more fractious side of this history? You know, I've, I have reflected on that um, in many ways. One is I was born and raised in a small town outside Nashville called Franklin, Tennessee, which anybody who watches the news might be aware of that. Now, I want to be clear. <laughs> when, I, when I lived there in the 1970s and 1980s, it had Republicans and Democrats, and we all got along just fine. I mean, politics or, or political uh, identity was simply not part of what it was back then to live in Franklin, Tennessee. Now it's a famously uh, red uh, part of Tennessee that's... Um, gets into trouble in the news not infrequently but what what is its its current uh, claim to headlines well most recently uh, i don't know how long they've had a pride parade in franklin but i'm going to assume for some years and it's just been a parade that's uh, has caused no commotion but i didn't i didn't read these articles with too much clarity but there was uh, the the individuals who were were in the pride parade felt intimidated and bullied I think some people maybe that we would call white supremacists were at the edges of things causing intimidation. So that, that got at least one article in the New York Times. So Franklin was in the Civil War. I grew up feeling like I was a Southerner. I grew up um, you know, feeling some sense of Southern guilt uh, with regard to Civil War that our, my ancestors, uh, white ancestors, you know, have been involved with the perpetuation of slavery. So it, you know, the, that many years later, and that, that I became interested in the Civil War. And so I think that's part of it. I was very interested in researching uh, the, the Civil War. And I had some great classes and great professors in my, um, in my early years at Yale where I went to college. And they really encouraged this exploration of, um, of, of the early origins of North-South conflict. So that's one. The other is um, through my own life experience, I became very interested um, even at a young age, in the emotion of fear, which we brought up earlier, as the number one driver of human behavior. And that there's a personal connection to that. So when I was six years old, my mother died by suicide. And so the, the what happened after that is, quite remarkably, I was fine. Until I turned 17 years old and went off to college, when I dealt with um, complicated, delayed grief, and, but interestingly enough, it was fear was the emotion I had the hardest time over the succeeding 10 years in coming to terms with because my mother had died by suicide. And so I had a fear, oh my God, my outcome is going to be similar to hers. And so I had to really work hard in a mindfulness matter and some, some of my own psychotherapy uh, to really begin to develop a mindfulness sense of, of mastery over the fear within me. So I did that quite successfully in my 20s and overcame that fear 
but I, it left me always believing that that fear is much more important than we give it credit for in all of human affairs. And then I began to apply that concept to history. And so in particular, when I went about researching this book, I was very interested, what are these founders most fearful of? And that's how I came to the conclusion, quite accurately, I do believe that their number one fear was fears of disunion and civil war, civil wars. For two centuries, we've taught that the number one fears of the founders was what? The might and power of the British Army and Navy. And they certainly feared that. But I can say with great assurance that that is not their number one fear. The outcome they feared the most was breaking apart into separate confederations, and that would lead to civil war. I want to uh, pick up in a moment on the, the personal story that you told, but I also want to pick up on something. You talked about a sense of guilt that you felt as a Southerner uh, because of slavery. Do you think that's a sentiment that is widely shared among Southerners today? Good question. You know, I've been out of the American South now since I was 17. Now, I do go back there. Uh, that may seem confusing. I'm a political historian at Vanderbilt, but I actually live, I'm going to begin to live more between them, but I live in San Francisco and have been out of the South for some time. But I definitely think um, that there is kind of intergenerational transmission of uh, guilt over slavery. Uh, and I've often, it wasn't probably in my 20s that I began to think about it. It's something that Germans have in common with Southerners. I do believe that this guilt is there. And so it's interesting, you know, this guilt did drive me in some ways to study um, Southern uh, history uh, when I was an undergraduate in college. And, but I could never could have, I don't think if, you, if you're driven by fear, you actually can't write competently. I mean, if you're driven by guilt, you cannot write competently. So it took me several decades to, to move away from that, where now I was able, I feel with some confidence to go back to this research, um, searching for the fear component. But I had, I had, I, w I was at that point pretty free of feelings of teenage and and early twenties uh, guilt about being a southerner. I don't, I don't have that anymore, and but it has a lot to do with self exploration and my pathway in life. So I do think that there are lots of, when guilt is there, it can lead to aggression and and defensiveness and blame of others instead of uh, working through that that guilt. Uh, so I do believe it's still there, but I can't comment as well on the guilt today as I could from twenty or thirty uh, years ago. You've had an unusual path to being a political historian. You're a psychiatrist. So tell me about what led you to become a psychiatrist and then what led you to become a historian. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I'm, I'm definitely on my second career. And I guess the best time to date the beginnings of the second career is, is 2018, where I feel very fortunate to have been invited to come to Vanderbilt as a visiting scholar for a year. And so before that, before 2018, I practiced psychiatry in San Francisco for 20 years. I trained at Stanford in psychiatry. And um, uh, my focus a lot, you say the word psychiatrist now, and most people think of a medications doctor. And I did prescribe medications, but in fact, what I spent 95% of my time doing was, was individual psychotherapy, interpersonal psychotherapy, and more specifically, um, existential psychotherapy. And so that's a form of treatment that really has a handful of dominant concerns. And those are finding meaning in life and finding emotional connection with others and then coping with fears of death. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I had a particular a childhood experience of my mother dying by suicide that instilled a lot of fear in me. So I 
importantly, uh, was able to work through that fear component in my late teens and, and 20s. Um, but the other component, so why did I change careers? I'd say the decision to go into psychiatry was made on the basis of meaningfulness, and it was incredibly, I don't think there's more meaningful work in the world, to be honest, than being a psychotherapist. But that's the mother side of my story. The father side of my story is my father was a, um, a U.S. attorney uh, from Middle Tennessee, and then he went on to be a federal judge. And so this was a man who loved history and loved the Constitution and loved our democracy and raised me to uh, understand that citizens have the most important role to play in the preservation of our democracy. And I had majored in history as an undergrad. So in some ways, my true trajectory was to was in history and was in not becoming a politician, but in but in my citizen active citizenship role with regard to healthy democracy. So in some ways, after my 20 year detour into psychiatry, I came back to these original loves that my father had that he he passed on he passed down to me. So in 2018, I went back to work on writing a book. I had written a, my senior essay was published in a, in a in a legal journal decades ago. So I came back and I turned that into a book. And at the same time, I began to write op-eds, um, uh, kind of going up the pecking order of different publications for that. But lots in the lots in the in the Los Angeles Times, one in the New York Times, and most of those relate to the problem the dangers that demagogues pose to democracies, and some of them directly named Trump in that regard, but it's pretty clear that that's my whole other area of focus and expertise is, is the, the dangers of demagogues to democracy, not just today, but from, from the historical basis. Well, let's talk about that. Um, what the U.S., you write that what the U.S. and the world have witnessed over the past seven years since Trump announced his run for president, now it would be eight years, um, is precisely the process of democratic deterioration that takes place when gatekeepers neglect to fulfill their duty to keep demagogues out of the executive pipeline. Uh, and that you write that uh, the election of demagogues is the first step in democratic breakdown. Say a little bit more about that. Um, and, and also how the founders very much anticipated the rise of demagogues and tried to prevent against it. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure you can tell me that you that's an essay that I wrote on my newsletter on Substack American Commonwealth, right? Yes. Okay, that's, that's not uh, it's, also, it's also an op-ed piece, I think, that was in the New York Times. Oh, that one was in the New York Times. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is pretty fresh on my mind right now because I'm preparing a talk for a, uh, a Chautauqua institution right outside Nashville called Mont Eagle. And the title of that talk is Alexander Hamilton's Theory of Democratic Collapse, A President Commences a Demagogue and Ends a Tyrant. Now, that last phrase there, commence a demagogue and end a tyrant, is from Alexander Hamilton's uh, first Federalist paper. I think it's important that it's the first Federalist paper. And just quickly, the footnote on that is the Federalist papers were written by Alexander Hamilton and John Jay and James Madison right after the Philadelphia Convention of 1787 in support of adopting the Constitution, in support of ratifying the Constitution. It's essentially this. I won't, I won't go into extraordinary detail about this, but here's, here's, here's the way we understand it. The, the demagogue is the greatest danger to a democracy, more than an absolute monarch, more than an authoritarian, more than a despot. And that seems, well, why would that be? Goodness, demagogues are just loud mouths who get elected. 
Well, that's it right there. You can't drive a tank into a healthy democracy. Can't do it. Uh, the democracy will, will reject that. The military will come out and, and, and rebuff the, the tyrant or the strongman. The demagogue, however, uh, takes advantage of the, the, the essential uh, mechanism of rising to power in a democracy, which is winning the votes of the people. So the demagogue, of course, is someone who wins votes by dividing the people, not uniting the people. The demagogue wins votes through fear-mongering, through hate-mongering, uh, through, and through bigot bigotry. And sadly, it works. I mean, history is filled with the story of the demagogue um, succeeding and getting to power. So that's the first thing. So you could, first danger and damage of the demagogue is the demagogue on their way to the White House, let's say, wreaks extraordinary damage to the people through these forces we just discussed of fear-mongering, hate-mongering, bigotry, and division. But then what happens when the demagogue reaches the ultimate position of power in a democracy? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the demagogue is the most vulnerable to this because of the lack of an internal sense of code of ethics and the ability even of a demagogue to put uh, nation and constitution above selfish interests and, and pursuit of power. So the demagogue converts into an authoritarian once drinking at the cup of power. And it's fascinating that we did see precisely that with Donald Trump, that he started off making all sorts of problems and really with no respect of the rule of law and the, and, and, and the constitution. But when he was about to be kicked out of office, what happened? Those acts that took place that he practiced on before and on January 6th, that's authoritarianism. He actually he actually did it through some demagoguery, but that was the tilt into authoritarianism, which the January 6th committee, I think, demonstrated quite, quite profoundly. And I will just say, uh, I don't want to compare any American politician to Adolf Hitler, but I want people to know that in the early 1930s, Adolf Hitler was not described as a, a genocidal um, authoritarian. No, he was described as a demagogue. So it's a frightening thing. Demagogues can bring down and destroy democracies and do much worse. So you talk about one of the main preventive measures against a demagogue are gatekeepers. Explain what you mean and what has happened to the gatekeepers today. That's a great question. And so maybe we could talk about two failed systems of gatekeepers. The first failed system of gatekeepers um, uh, that is, will be most on folks' minds is the power of the House of Representatives and the Senate to impeach, which is the first step, and it really is symbolic, and it invites the Senate to hold a trial. So twice um, Trump was impeached, twice uh, the impeachment uh, articles proceeded to the Senate, and twice the Republicans did not uh, cast their vote for the health of our democracy. They instead cast their vote against Trump being convicted. And then importantly, there's the power after that uh, to have a second vote within the Senate, which is to vote to have the individual who was convicted permanently disbarred from ever again serving in federal government. So I think people might be able to disagree about the first impeachment and the Senate's decision then, but I don't think any reasonable person can successfully disagree at all with what happened on February 13th, 2021, and that is the date <clears throat> that the Senate, uh, Senate Republicans failed to achieve the requisite votes, two thirds majority, in order to convict Trump and permanently disbar him from future office. That to me is 
the most tragic day in uh, United States constitutional government and of our democracy that I can remember. January 6th was a pretty tragic day, but by far the more tragic day for me is when the Senate did not step up and do its gatekeeping duty and protect our democracy from a demagogue who had already demonstrated that he was tilting strongly into authoritarianism. So that's the, one. The, yeah, I mean, this, this was the moment. This was the tool that the founders provided against demagogues, impeachment, conviction, and, you know, essentially disbarment from holding a future office. And it failed. Um, and it, what did the founders miss in creating this tool? And why did the modern day gatekeepers, the Republican Party, were, were they unable to use this tool to stop Trump or chose just not to do it? Well, I've, I've thought about that, and I think there are many reasons. Uh, just, to, just to name what's most um, fresh on my mind right now, <clears throat> I think that we think of U.S. senators as intelligent, well-educated people, which I think we should. But it's very clear to me that those individuals in the Senate who did not vote to convict and disbar Trump from future federal office do not understand democracy. And they do not understand demagogues. And that what that really means at its deepest core is they do not understand history. And so obviously we cannot require that everyone who's elected to high federal office, uh, uh, we might be able to actually, we could talk about that, but we, we can't require that they arrive with knowledge of history. But the founders never thought for a second that, um, that the predominance or the majority of the folks serving in government might not be well-educated and might not be enlightened by the reading of history to understand what their duty was when it came to a uh, demagogue. That's one reason that we, of course, we have hyper-partisanship. We have problems now with technology-fueled demagoguery. I think people are more um, dislocated from their communities. They're more dislocated from sort of religious roots or healthy religious roots, I'll put it that way. And therefore, there's an overdependence on party. So I think a lot of um, folks, Democrats and Republicans, have a life and death sense of attachment to their political party, which is incredibly unhealthy, but it's a life or death attachment to their political party. So they put that over the Constitution. They put that um, over the best interest of the nation. Quickly, the other gatekeepers who failed are, um, I want to state this as succinctly as possible, the Republican Party, both political parties have, have historically had the responsibility through all of our history until the 1970s. They have had the responsibility of elevating into the presidential pipeline, which means in their presidential nominating conventions that take place every four years, they've had the responsibility of, of putting together a responsible party platform and of elevating an individual who is ethical, and presumably, hopefully, understanding of democracy and, 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 of, and of the necessity of adhering to the Constitution. And that's the role. That's one of the most important roles of a political party, is to elevate an ethical presidential nominee. That's my view. Ethical presidential nominee. But beginning in the 1970s, for complex reasons, we got rid of, removed, essentially, the power of the political parties to determine who they were going to nominate. We moved towards a primary system which is, sounds good on paper. Oh, more democracy, that's good. 
Sounds good on paper, but it's very, very dangerous. We removed the gatekeepers who could block demagogues and authoritarians from moving into the presidential pipeline. So hopefully in years and decades to come, we will reform our system. And there's many ways to do that that could, that could create new gatekeepers to prevent demagogues and authoritarians from emerging into the presidential pipeline. But I like to think of it this way. However we do it, let the political parties nominate the candidates for president and let the people elect the president. We don't need two separate elections to take place in order to um, get uh, a successful presidential uh campaign and successful democracy in this country. So eliminate the electoral college. No, in fact, I'm talking about the primaries. The oh, primary the prim Trump, for example, became there. In fact, the primaries are, in my view, in fact, anti-democratic. We say, well, the people vote. Yes. But many people define democracy as the majority actually determines the outcome of any given matter we're voting on. So Trump, in both cases, I don't have the statistics at the front of my mind, but he emerged as the Republican nominee for president with something like 30 or 35 percent of the primary votes. So the Electoral College could be another source of gatekeeping. But as most people know, we years ago, we basically we, we basically neutralized or neutered the electrical, Electoral College from having any power. It's basically determined by uh, the popular vote in the states. And I don't actually think we should change that. I do believe the presidential election, the, the election of the president should be a strong, strong action of democracy in our country, maybe the strongest action of democracy, which would mean some other changes with winner state, winner take all states and things like that. Um, but what we need to control for is who emerges into that general election for president. Some gatekeepers have to elevate ethical people, period. There are current modern voices of people such as Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, people who we could uh, perhaps uh, debate whether they are modern demagogues who are now again calling for secession, calling for, for example, the southern states essentially to relitigate the Civil War. You have a new piece in the LA Times, an op-ed piece uh, called uh, 1776 and the Right of Secession. Um, talk about secession today and the risk of breakup and whether it might be a good thing. <laughs> Not a good thing at all. The founders were fearful of disunion and civil wars uh, their whole lives, let's put it that way. And then we actually found that disunion leads to civil war. Now that's complicated by a, a really wonderful outcome of the American Civil War, of course, probably the most important outcome in all US history, which was the emancipation of slaves. Um, so that piece in the LA Times, I've written a lot of opinion pieces, and I do have favorites. And this is really one of my favorites. It's I don't most of my own pieces, I don't read and feel kind of elevated by them. But this one is actually called 1776 and the right of revolution. And so uh, that a core principle in the Declaration of Independence. So uh, essentially, what it, what the article uh, discusses is that the Declaration of Independence was a nonviolent manifesto. And in fact, the right of revolution does not have anything to do with taking up arms. The Declaration of Independence doesn't talk about uh, revolution, the word. It does not uh, talk about guns or violence. There's a two-step sense of what the founders uh, decided to do when oppression began in uh, the 1760s. And this was handed down to them by John Locke as a political philosopher 
and, uh, and a handful of other political philosophers. And essentially, it says when a government turns unconstitutional and oppressive, you have the right of revolution, which means first, the right of resistance. So we have nonviolent civil disobedience is the first step that you practice. And for a long time, that's what the founders did. The Stamp Act, which they considered to be oppressive because it taxed them without representation. It was in 1765. So you can think of for, for a decade, they practice uh, nonviolent civil disobedience. And unfortunately, what happened? That nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, there was some property destruction in Boston with a T. So that's something we could debate. That was, that was a crime, in fact. Um, but the British imposed far greater repression on them as the result of their nonviolent civil disobedience. So they then activated the second principle that all peoples have within a government. And that is, uh, if, if civil, dis civil disobedience does not succeed in pushing back the tyranny and pushing back the unconstitutionalism, then the people have a right to withdraw from that government and form their own uh, government to protect their rights. And so you don't arm yourself in order to attack uh, the other the government you're withdrawing from. You arm yourself to defend your rights. So that's what they did. And so now this talk of uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene calling for national divorce, it has no applicability to the piece that I have in the LA Times coming out on the early morning of July 4th. This is more reckless rhetoric, which is extremely dangerous. And you withdraw from a government that is proved to be arbitrary that has proved to be uh, uh, not amenable to reform if it has tyranny after civil disobedience. So that's that's unfortunate demagoguery, I think, to call for national divorce. Right now, history itself is hotly contested. And uh, throughout Republican-led states, there are efforts to whitewash history, to, uh, you know, in various formats, purge anything out of K-12 history that, you know, in some states they talk about making people feel bad. Uh, um, so what is, I'm curious which one of these efforts to kind of, uh, you know, carefully curate history so as not to make people feel bad or just the more, uh, you know, just whitewashing history. What's lost when we do that? Well, when you when we talk about that, I think of uh, history wars, not in relationship, actually, as much to I think some of this may be history, but the culture wars that are taking place with books and book banning. Um, but the history wars that are taking place, for example, over the matter of slavery and the founding of the nation, over the 1619 project, which I think is a wonderful contribution to our understanding of history and uh, Nicole uh, Hannah Jones, if anybody wants to take issue with the 1619 project, you should actually go to YouTube and listen to some of her videos. And what you will actually find she's saying is, I'm not trying to supersede uh, the, the story of um, the freedom of white Americans, which began in 1776, but I'm trying to add, there's a whole different story that needs to be told as well. And that is, what is the story of African Americans or African slaves who were brought here beginning in, in 1619? So it's a different origin story that I think is very important. And I think the critical thing is we really need to understand the importance of uh, being able to move out of 
single version telling of history as we were touching on at the beginning. We need to adopt and celebrate complex history. When you, when you, for example, I was alluding to earlier these three interpretive models for why the founders perpetuated slavery. And one is the, is the systemic racism interpretation, one is the economic interpretation, and the other is the one I introduced, the survivalist interpretation. We, we need to not have to lock on to just one of these and say, well, this is the one that I believe in. When we do that, we really narrow our minds. We really become part of the problem instead of part of the, the solution of understanding, again, complex history. I believe complex history, if we're, a, if we're willing to take it on, can be very healing. It's been, it's been that in my own life as I've encountered um, different concepts that seem mutually exclusive. You find history is that complex. Things happen that are very contradictory. So if we can break through uh, our own, the cognitive dissidence and the righteous mind that we may experience with regard to one interpretation over the own other and actually find, wow, I can embrace all three of these interpretations and someone proposes another one and you're curious to learn about it rather than defensively opposing it. Oh, it's a much better outcome for somebody's personal life and also for our political lives together. You though. Yeah, I want to just uh, finish by uh, picking up on something you've said uh, that uh, Juneteenth, you believe, is more important than July 4th as a national holiday. Why do you say that? Well, that is actually the feature article uh, on my uh, Substack newsletter, American Commonwealth. It's the feature article. Now, I'm, I was actually I found it remarkable, the positive um, feedback I got on this. But in a nutshell, I was not more than three weeks ago, just found myself thinking about this, about Juneteenth, this new holiday makes sense to me. Uh, it makes great sense to celebrate the emancipation of, 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 of enslaved peoples, no matter when you pick the date, you could pick many dates. But actually then I had really, what, what was for me is sort of a revelation. That's why I wrote this piece. I actually concluded, wait a minute, this is not just important. This is the emancipation of 4 million enslaved people in the period between 1763 and 1765 when the 13th amendment was adopted is the single most important event in all American history. If you just compare the magnitude of the wrongs that were being committed and the freedom that was, uh, was launched at that point, uh, we, don't have to, we don't have to compare. I, I do compare in my own mind. It's clearly to me the most important event in all US history, but that's not my biggest point. My biggest point is that this really, we don't understand Juneteenth. It's new to us. It's not a holiday that is, I like to think that really exists in our minds and in our hearts. And so I think we should all study it and understand it and celebrate this Independence Day for Afri African Americans for a while with much more vigor and interest than the 4th of July, because we already understand that holiday. There's, we, we celebrate it because it's important, but we don't have that much more to learn except for in my book, of course, I, <laughs> I offer this new interpretation of how it came about. But Juneteenth is, I, I just have attached myself to it as being so important for us and such an important day to celebrate. Okay, well, Eli Merritt, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Well, it's been great to be with you. Eli Merritt is a political historian at Vanderbilt University. His new book is Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. He is also the author of the Substack American Commonwealth.